This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I'm your host, Sam LaCrosse. Can you dig it? I can. And guys, this week has, this this week has kicked the shit out of me. I don't know if it's, a, if it's, if it's the start of, you know, a new month or whatever, but this has been about the toughest week to get through I can remember imaginable. I had a lot going on. I had a lot of calls. I had a lot of stuff going on at my not this job. I had a lot of my stuff going on with this job, a lot of things with travel, a lot of things with all, all good stuff for the most part, you know, God bless and everything. But Man, it's been hard, and I think like it, it just kind of—I don't know—it's just been a rough week to get through. So if you guys are going through it, I am going through it as well. Have an exciting week. I'm recording this on a Friday. I have something to do in like two hours, so I got to get dressed appropriately to do all those type of things. I have a friend coming over in like an hour and a half. We're gonna, you know, we'll go over this thing together. Uh, friend's birthday. I actually shout out to Dan Allen. Dan's birthday was a couple days ago. His birthday celebration is tonight. So happy birthday, Dan! Uh, already wish you happy birthday. You never texted me back, but that that's cool. We're gonna see you tonight anyway. So thank you for inviting me to get food with you, all that sort of stuff. But I think regardless of all the stuff that's going on, this is a topic that has been on my head for very, very long, or not really very long, not like my, my whole life or anything, but it's been really an intense feeling I've had for a very long time. And I think a lot of people should know more about it, or at least talk more about it. And that is the subject of what is going on right now in Russia and Ukraine. And it's just kind of been something that I've thought and been very puzzled about. I've questioned a lot of things. I've questioned myself on a lot of things. Every news source you can imagine, I've questioned all of them at least once. What's the angle behind this? What is that between everything else like this? And I, I think it's, it's getting to a point where it's starting to be of serious concern to a lot of people, rightfully, I think, as you'll hear me make later in the episode. But... I think it's just something we need to have more clarity and more conversation against. And that is what the goal of this post is going to be and this podcast is going to be, is to get those conversations started with kind of with yourself first and foremost and with a lot of other people in terms of just getting things out to the people that really need to hear this information. So not going to waste your time. I think this is kind of what was you know kind of contributing to my week being very long. It's a very dark topic. This is a very a topic that is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I think that just, it's something we need to talk about though. We need to rip the bandaid off. We need to talk about it. And I think we are going to get to a point where we're going to talk about it right now. And if you listen to this podcast for the rest of the time, you are going to get to that point. So that being said, let's get to the point that I've been trying to make for the past like three different points. So here we go. Anniversaries are a big deal. 
They're the mark of transcendence, a uh, passage of time, a watermark that stamps into the existential membrane something of significance. It can be, on one hand, an opportunity for celebration, exultation, and optimistic outlook into the future. On the other, an opportunity for grief, mourning, and pessimism about what is to come. It is something that, on paper, is remarkably simple. However, in practice, these things are much more complicated, layered, and nuanced. February 24th of this year marked the one-year anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine and inciting the biggest conflict that Europe had seen since the Second World War. What was widely seen as an unprovoked attack into a sovereign nation quickly captivated the world, galvanizing the non-Russian-aligned masses into a frenzy of support for an innocent populace that was instantly thrust into a massive conflict on a scale that really none, none of us, no people at least my age, had ever seen before. Young people, as mentioned, those who had never seen traditional warfare play out before, were especially alarmed. Russia was immediately condemned, years of anti-Russia bias finally being cashed in with the torrid downpours of I told you so. The War on Terror, a completely horrific war that in and of itself, but was very different than this one. That was a guerrilla war, one that was far less visible than this one. The Russia-Ukraine War, one where tanks were rolled out, building, buildings were openly shelled, and millions of refugees were immediately created, shocked the world in a way similar to the COVID pandemic. It was also out of nowhere, so sudden, so unforeseen. And with one year gone into this conflict, it has been very interesting to have watched from afar all that has transpired since the first proverbial shot was fired and heard around the world. Much has happened. Much has changed. It would do us good, all things considered, to see where we currently stand within this conflict. Contrary to much of what you'll hear, this is not just a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. That is far too simple, and far too naive of an analysis. War is far from a simple thing, no matter how much talking heads on TV and our expert in ruling classes and mob that enforces them attempt to make it out to be. We must come to our own conclusions, and we must make our own decisions. However, in attempting to do this, we have a problem. For the largest part of the past year, we have not been able to do this. We have not been able to come to our own conclusions. We have not been able to make our own decisions on what we think of this war. Bizarrely, but perhaps not so bizarrely, only one side of the narrative has been allowed to be discussed. Only one side of the narrative can be heard. The propaganda machine that serves as our media is well at work. As said, and as I said earlier, war is an incredibly complex thing. And a good rule of thumb to follow with all complex things is that whenever someone tries to dumb down said thing that needs intelligence and nuance to discuss, a red flag should immediately shoot up in your head. Following in the footsteps of that rule, Another good one to have for oneself would be that people should be allowed to voice a dissenting opinion to the ones currently presented. Anyone who attempts to crush someone under the weight of absolutes and under threat should immediately be seen as tyrannical and untrustworthy. Yet amazingly, both of these things haven't been allowed to happen when it comes to the Ukraine and Russia conflict. Many powerful people, the ones that are pulling the majority of the strings the continuance of this war, are dumbing down the narrative. Whenever dissent from the narrative has been shown, those same powerful people all swarm together and destroy that dissent like moths to a flame. This should not be allowed to happen in a supposedly free society. All people have the right to speak and think freely. There is no such thing as a hate crime or thought crime. There is only one speech that doesn't like and thoughts that one doesn't agree with. The latter is American, the former is Orwellian. It is important to know the difference. Anytime you are not able to question something, no matter what that something is, an alarm should go off in your head. It is an automatic sign of tyranny when you are told that the people in charge cannot be questioned on their actions, particularly when the purpose for their existence is to serve you as a citizen. You should always be allowed to question those who make decisions. 
particularly if those decisions are made by people in power who have a large influence over your life. The mass cultural amnesia of people towards their God-given rights is a remarkably alarming thing, particularly in America. We are not getting the full story of what is going on with this conflict. We have been told for a year that Russia is inherently an evil country run by a tyrannical ruler who wants to conquer the world in Hitlerian fashion, with Ukraine as his 1939 Poland. We have been told that Ukraine is inherently saint-like, that they can do no wrong, that they are only victims, and that any sway from saying just, just as such is disloyalty. Further, and more importantly to us, we have been told that this war is a faraway thing, that we have little to, to nothing to do with the outcome of the war itself. We're told that we're little more than helpless bystanders, people who can do nothing other than throw up a hashtag stand with Ukraine and put a Ukrainian flag emoji in our Twitter bio. This is their problem, but definitely not when it comes to our opportunity to virtue signal because of it. Both of these things, as it turns out, are lies. Dangerous lies. We are getting fed propaganda, a carefully curated view that benefits few much more than it benefits many. Russia is not absolutely wrong. Ukraine is not absolutely right. There are far more wolves in sheep's clothing than meets the eye. A lot of powerful people are driving the, narr driving the narrative of both of these countries to the detriment of all that lose the most when it comes to any war, the non-powerful people. America is not far away from this conflict as all, as it turns out. Rather, we are helping to feed the flames. We've given away American tax dollars to fuel the war machine that is increasingly escalating both in force and in scale. What once started out as a small conflict over a long-disputed region of territory that was known about by approximately five people in America is now the most paid-attention-to thing in America post-COVID. What was once a small regional conflict fought with armies and outdated weaponry on the front lines is now a global powder keg being fought with drone-powered cruise missiles and American-donated tanks that are disintegrating two beautiful European countries in a completely unnecessary and horrifying fashion. Something has gone very wrong. We are not getting the whole story nor seeing the full picture. Something, obviously, is amiss. The point of this article is not to deny that Russia should not have invaded Ukraine, that they've slain thousands of Ukrainian civilians and soldiers, and are led by a glorified gangster with an inferiority and power complex, because those things are certainly true. The point of this article is not to deny that Ukraine should not have been invaded by Russia, that they should not have a right to defend their country in the case of a military conflict, or that the people of Ukraine do not deserve our sympathy because that is also true. The point of this podcast, rather, is to show that the conversation around this war, our involvement in it, and those who question it, is not as unilateral and simple as we are being told that it is. Rather, it is much more complicated and much more dense than we could ever hope to imagine. We are much more involved in the, continu the continuation and escalating danger of this conflict than anyone who is responsible for said continuation and escalation will ever willingly admit. This affects not just Russia, Ukraine, or the United States. This conflict affects the world and everyone in it. Therefore, a clear picture and coherent story is needed, one where no side is spared from criticism, judgment, scorn, or sympathy. You have rights. The most basic one is the first one, the one that is enshrined in the Bill of Rights first for a reason. We all should be able to make any decisions around our speech and thoughts that we want. This does not mean that one is spared from judgment for those speech and thoughts but everyone has a right to them. And sadly, this is not what has happened with the war we find ourselves fighting on behalf of a nation that five years ago, almost no American would have been able to point out on a map. Americans are getting a completely distorted picture of what is actually going on. Also, and insidiously, we are getting told that we should not voice our opinions on what is going on, that we should simply take our medicine, shut up, and obey the people in charge. 
we don't need to pay attention because it's all being taken care of, you see. This is horseshit. America's power complex, one that is funded by greed and a misplaced sense of virtue, is brainwashing people surrounding this conflict. As Americans, information is our most powerful ally into something as complicated as this. We need to be able to see who the bad actors truly are to be able to inform ourselves, Russia, Ukraine, and the rest of the world. Because without proper information, we are relegated to being slaves of people who don't have our best interest at heart. Those who would much rather get their way to our ignorance than to our, do their actual job of keeping us duly informed. It's ridiculous that only people like Tucker Carlson, Jimmy Dore, Tulsi Gabbard, Glenn Greenwald, Kim Iverson, Jeffrey Sachs, Dave Smith, and Matt Taibbi, people who are hated so much by our ruling class they largely inhabit back-channel media, are the only ones calling this out. It's a shame that, when they do, they are called out for being Russian propagandists and traitors, the latter of which could result in a potential life sentence in prison. Worst of all, what they're doing and saying is right. Being punished for saying that something is inconveniently correct is a sign that maybe, just maybe, we're not living in as free of a country as you once thought that we were. Analyzing how we've talked about the Russo-Ukraine war could show a lot about how the systems in power in America can be, and have been, weaponized to be applicable to nearly everything. However, to do that, several steps must be taken. First, we must analyze what we are being told that is happening in this conflict. Second, we must take that information and compare it to what is actually happening in order to see the truth. Lastly, and most importantly, we need to use what we have learned to spread the truth to the masses that, contrary to what the people in charge will have you believe, we should be very worried about where this monster we've helped create is going. So buckle in, because it's time to do our best 2004 Billy Joe Armstrong impression. Lead singer of Green Day, album is American Idiot, by the way. Protest album against the uh, the war on terror, if you did not aware. It's a fantastic, he holds a special place in my heart. If you read my book, Value Economics Out Now, by the way, wrote my book, he's in there too. Part one, what we've been told is going on. From the vantage point of our expert and ruling classes and their loyal mobs, Winston Churchill made a stunningly sec a stunning second address to Congress and Congress on the winter solstice of last year. However, unlike his first address he did nearly 90 years ago, he did not come dressed in a suit and a top hat. He did not come as a humble leader that asked his greatest ally on the world stage for help. He did not offer anything in return for the loyalty that would result in the escalation of the bloodiest conflict in the history of the world. It was a stark contrast, but one that, strangely, no one seemed to notice. Instead, the Winston Churchill that we got to revel in came in the form of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. That was who the mass media and those who fed its machine said was the new Churchill, a transcendent world leader who, in the throes of the biggest conflict in Europe since the Great War, was the one that we should all look to for inspiration, sweatpants and all. Stranger still, Zelensky's address to Congress on December 21st, 2022, was completely antithetical to Churchill's after the Blitz left much of Britain in rubble. Instead of asking for help, he demanded it from all of us, threatening us with a virtue-based blackmail that, should the United States not universally show their loyalty, that they were committing genocide. He did this horrible act while wearing street clothes you would find in any common Dick's sporting goods or urban ghetto. He said nothing about what Ukraine, the country that was doing all the demanding, would do to repay the United States for their generosity. He did not say what any of the money was for. He only demanded that either we give it all to him or that we were bad people. Zelensky, even though he only came to power of the Ukrainian presidency due to a Westback overthrow of the government, 
came to as a somewhat funny foil to that of the prior United States President Donald Trump. A former comedian and television star, Zelensky was exactly who the people who propped him up wanted to be, a middle finger to those in positions of serious leadership. But, unlike Trump, he was completely beholden to the elites of our world, and not despised by them. And because of this, because of the people that universally lauded him, he did not come to the United States last December in the mold of a president. Instead, he came in the mold of a conqueror. And this was made abundantly clear in one of the most stunning displays of political disrespect that I've ever seen. The only way that I can summarize it adequately is by using a scene from Avatar The Last Airbender. In the season 3 premiere, the Fire Nation moves into the Earth Kingdom capital, Ba Sing Se, and formally begins the process of taking over the newly fallen city and nation. One of the first acts of the armies as they march through the once impenetrable walls is to remove the Earth Kingdom emblem and replace it with the Fire Nation flag. It is a sign of the New World Order that has taken over their world, a sign that their ultimate humiliation and subjugation has taken full effect. When Volodymyr Zelensky came into Congress on that fateful day, it wasn't all that different to when the Fire Nation did the Earth Kingdom. When Zelensky came in, he brought with him a Ukrainian flag, which members of Congress willingly put their signatures on. Then, strolling to the front of their most hollow chambers of our, of our government, he draped it over the desk of the Speaker. No more was America's flag in the hall of America's system of government to be respected. A new world order had taken command. Any disrespect, any disloyalty, any prior loyalty to the government that actually served a purpose for everyone in that room was immediately abolished and condemned. Instead, the patrons of that room, all with Ukrainian flag lapels pinned onto their suits, did the exact embodiment of Emperor Palpatine when he took over the Galactic Senate. As said by Padme Amidala, this is how democracy dies, with thunderous applause. As the president of the Ukraine stood up there, desecrating our flag, calling all of his distance scum of the earth, and demanding resources for a cause that he could not justify going towards, a clear dichotomy arose. Here was a man in an illegitimate government that the West had helped create that was ordering citizens of a country he did not govern that they give him more, more, and more. More money, more resources, more training, more weapons, more, more, more. If Zelensky was of German descent, perhaps a better name would have been Augustus Gloop. Yet, in a clear act of tyrannical autocracy being levied at America's citizens, those citizens were not allowed to say anything about it. We were forced to shut up and take our medicine. To listen to the demands of an insane person with a god complex talk about funding a war that is obliterating a beautiful part of the world at the expense of a few powerful oligarchs that are making an insane amount of money by completely destabilizing that beautiful region and people of the world. When we did the same thing to the Middle East and the war on terror, those in charge were called Islamophobes and colonizers. Now, those people are called heroes and patriots. But this never happens. It never does. All we've been told is that Russia is bad and that Ukraine is good. That is as far as the conversation goes. Any questioning further as to why we have done anything in the last year is immediately displaced as disinformation or traitorous. It is only in a non-democratic government that dissent from the powerful can be labeled these things. Yet, dangerously, this is increasingly what has been happening here. Absolutes, as we've repeated for three years on this platform, are very dangerous. They lead to rigid and toxic ideological beliefs that lead you to dig deeper trenches and provide an easier pathway to demonize and dehumanize the people who stand in opposition to it. Absolutes are the root of nearly all tribalism and divide that has existed in humans throughout the centuries. All Christians are God-denying Gentiles. 
all Muslims are terrorists, all Republicans are greedy scumbags, all Democrats are communist grifters. The song remains the same, no matter what era of time it's being played in. The absolute that we've all been told in the age of the Russia-Ukraine insanity is that if you don't do exactly as we tell you and say exactly what we tell you to say about this conflict, you are the enemy. If you in any way show any wavering support from Ukraine in this conflict, you will immediately be blacklisted as a Putin sympathizer or a traitor. You'll be no different than Tucker Carlson, Tulsi Gabbard, Glenn Greenwald, Dave Smith, or Matt Taibbi. You'll be looked down upon as an enemy of the state, an apostate, someone who wants the West to burn for not wanting the East to be completely destroyed. The war machine that is driving us towards another massive global conflict with the biggest nuclear power in the world is doing everything it can to make sure that all ways around what we're being told the narrative is are crushed with impunity. Our national sovereignty and the myriad of serious problems going on at home are secondary to those in a faraway land in a war that no one knows anything about. None of it makes any sense. Yet, we are told to blindly follow. Train crashes that are the equivalent of Chernobyl in East Palestine, Ohio, don't matter. Neither does us running out of baby formula. Neither do things that threaten children or the family or anything surrounding the social fabric of our culture. No one in any position of power is doing anything to solve the hard problems. All we have are distractions. Things that can take the attention of the citizenry away from massive and very public failures that are hollowing out and wrecking America. We're too busy worrying about transgender M&Ms the Ukrainian border than to give a fuck about poor people not having money to buy groceries or men and women slowly but surely growing to hate one another. There's nothing to see here. We have the hashtag stand with Ukraine. What are you, some kind of Russian asset or something? This movement, this insanity, this nonsensical behavior is being driven by one group of people in particular. When you understand who they are, all of it will begin to make some sort of sense. But before we get there, it is perfectly normal to think that these people are far from normal. They are. They have no interest in doing right by where they live and by the people that they supposedly care about. Because rather, they only care about expanding their own power by exploiting that group of people that depend on them for personal gain. The Cultural Globalists To revisit, cultural globalism is the abandonment of local and national communities in favor of enriching yourself by banding together with one global one, away from all of your inherent obligations and responsibilities that come with being a citizen of that community. It is frolicking in the flowers of your created heaven while basking in the light of your newly abandoned hell. It is condemning people, usually the most marginalized and the weak, to a life that is no longer to be improved upon by those who have benefited most from the society itself. Rather, it is using them as pawns in your grand scheme of self-actualization to get, quote, the good life, while not giving a fuck about those you have to step on, those who depend on you to help them, to get it. In tandem to this narrative, we are being told by the cultural globalists that anything happening at home, where we live and where we make our lives, should be automatically placed in the back seat. There's no reason to worry that a near-nuclear explosion blew up East Palestine. There is no reason to worry that seemingly more and more trains seem to be doing the exact same thing. There is no reason to worry about that inflation is once again increasing. There is no need to worry about our southern border being invaded by foreign nationals, most of them who aren't even coming from Mexico. There is no need reason to worry about the massive outbreaks of crime that are claiming the lives of innocent bystanders, lost young people, and the small businesses that frequent the communities where the carnage ensues. There is no need to worry about the mental health of our young people, who are attempting to self-medicate their struggles by smoking fentanyl out of a strip of tinfoil on the sidewalk. Instead, laughably, what we are told is that we need to do our part, quote, for the world by, quote, promoting democracy abroad. 
This is a very strange assertion, particularly considering the man they're promoting is that of democracy, the one who adorned the covers of Time and Vogue, is a figurehead autocrat with a degree in stand-up comedy. If it sounded like the plot of a mildly good Seth Rogen movie, it's because it is the plot of a mildly good Seth Rogen movie. The most morbidly ironic part of all of this is that for all of the talk of, quote, democracy, it's clearly something we don't have in America anymore. The war is an unpopular topic. The priorities of Americans are elsewhere. They're not stupid. They're self-aware enough to see that much of what their own life constitutes is much more fucked up than it should be. Why would we throw a war in some distant land on top of it and make it worse? Why would we talk about democracy, a system of government and philosophy that places the citizen as the highest power broker in the land, when the citizens of America clearly aren't reaping the benefits? These are all good questions. So, naturally, these are the questions that have remained unanswered from our expert and ruling classes. We have been all told that all of this is a benefit, quote, to the world and to Ukraine, that nothing wrong can be done by our ever-increasing involvement in something that doesn't nearly concern us or our well-being at all. Moreover, we are being told that these people, the citizens that are bearing by far the most brutal of the horror of this, that is this war, are grateful for us doing so. They're grateful that, day by day, more money is being spent on sending advanced weapon systems and other weapons of war in the form of artillery to taxpayer cash to defeat the Diet Red Army of Russia. Additionally, any concern of nuclear conflict, or even of open warfare with Russia and their allies, is mysteriously dispelled as an over-exaggeration. Constantly, we're told that Russia's military is soft, that they'll eventually fold if we just throw more missiles and money at the problem. More, more, and more. That's the solution to everything, it seems. What these people seem not to realize, however, is that, when men win, is that men win wars, not weapons. And Russia's strategy for the entire of their history of war has been to throw their men at the front lines till the other side cries uncle. Any notion that the strategy is to, that uh, any notion of that strategy rather is to immediately push to the wayside is something that can never be, which is obviously false. Finally, the last thing we've been told is that any past notion that these same people once had about parroting about Vladimir Putin being a quote madman were an over exaggeration. He was one up until he wasn't one. For the past half decade, we've been told that Putin is an unhinged psychopath, one that will stop at nothing to get what he wants. He's not Joseph Stalin. He's worse. He's Ivan the Terrible. He's an open dictator, a former KGB agent whose line of lone obsession was the rivalry revival of the Soviet Union and the destruction of all who opposed that revival of the Soviet Union. But now, when the talk of nuclear conflict is at stake, Putin no longer fits this description. Instead, he is a weak coward one that can't hold a handle the white, the white knight of his arrival, Volodymyr Zelensky. He is an impotent, unimpressive, and past his prime wannabe who has lost his edge, health, and mind. That wasn't really what they meant, you see. They just wanted to get you to take him seriously enough so that the war machine got going in their desired direction. They said the quiet part out loud. All we have to do now is dutifully follow where eventually takes us. This is what we have been told. This is the narrative that those in charge want us to believe. This is the blue pill they're forcing us to swallow whole. Any questioning of it, and the real-world agents swoop in in a desperate attempt to plug you back into the Matrix. And to give them some grace, they should. Because our Matrix, like the movie, has disguised a horror. A horror so big that, if unearthed, could never be deemed as a remotely condonable strategy.
Part two, what is actually going on? What we've seen on our television surrounding the Russia-Ukraine conflict has been one thing. It has been seen as something morbidly romantic, like something out of Shakespeare or a Damien Chazelle film. However, perception and propaganda often dilutes reality. Unfortunately for all of us, most importantly those doing the fighting of the war, dilute is too easy of a word to describe the actual state of affairs. A more appropriate word would be drown. If you look at pre-war photographs of what Eastern Europe was like, it was a remarkably beautiful place. Yeah, I had no intention to ever go to Eastern Europe, at least most likely, even though half my family hails from the Czech Republic. I'm not much of a traveler in the first place. I only pick my locations that I visit out of necessity or very rarely a genuine curiosity. I was content with reading about those countries afar and watching them occasionally populate my phone or television. But there is no denying that once you do see what the environment looks like, it's an incredibly beautiful place. Like all cultures that have stood the test of time, the architecture and the artwork that adorned the city were immaculate. The history that dripped off the walls, the men and women that throughout the ages changed the world in that region, were palpable. There were good civilizations that, unlike the United States, had successfully stood the set of time, some for more than a thousand years. Additionally, they have been carved out of some of the most prior untamed and unhabitable land in the world, filled with blistering winters and mountains that seem to stab the sky. There is an inherent resilience about that landscape. It shows just how hard it was to make what they had, had made, a civilized society out of a remarkably uncivilized place. It's sad that a good portion of what I once described no longer exists because of some unromantic, some ever-so-romantic war that people are trying to make its exact opposite. Thankfully, pictures never lie, unlike people. These things are e easily Googleable. If you do use Google, or preferably another search engine, you'll see that much of what I listed as a beautiful accent to the cultures of Eastern Europe is no longer applicable to the, due to the last year of war. Entire cities in Ukraine have been reduced to nothing but mounds of rubble and piles of dust. Buildings have been firebombed. Homes have been wiped off the face of the earth. Roads have been blown to bits. Bridges have been torn down. Great buildings that have housed things like churches and government offices, ones that have stood for hundreds of years, have been completely decimated. Newly homeless people adorned the ruined sidewalks, destitute and starving, desperate for the pain to stop. As for the social fabric of Ukraine, that has been all but eroded due to the ascent of their president-turned-dictator. Being given initially necessary emergency powers at the onset of the war, Zelensky has abused and used them to not only not benefit the citizens of Ukraine, but for himself. What was once a great honor to bestow those types of powers has now turned into a political weapon, transforming an already shaky democracy into a newly minted autocracy. From the onset of the war, several disturbing things that have happened in both Ukraine and Russia that are disturbing. Sticking with our autocratic friend from the Donbass region, he has since used his new powers to jail all relevant political opponents. He has shut down the Ukrainian Orthodox Church on political grounds, denying his citizens, many of whom could use their faith more than ever to get through these times, access to their faith. He has deployed neo-Nazi battalions to do battle for him while the rest of the world is too busy worrying about Whoopi Goldberg and Kanye West. On the Russian side, their strategies have ruined thousands of lives in their countries as well. To beef up their military, Russia has used its already autocratic government to create a funnel of political persecution. Enemies of the Russian state and Vladimir Putin are the first to be sent to the front lines, where they are outgunned by far superior weapons. It's not at all dissimilar to using a wood chipper to shred a piece of paper. 
The craziest thing about all of this, from both sides of the conflict, is that peace has been on the table. They've both had an opportunity to stop this. The governments that are relying behind them have had a chance to stop this. But no one has. No one has stepped up to the plate and demand that secessions be made from both parties so that the people that are actually suffering can begin a road towards healing. To them, the supposed, quote, leaders of these nations, it is better that their pride be satiated by more bloodshed, more carnage, more obliteration of creed and culture. If you do choose to look up the pictures, and I recommend that you do, they will look like something out of World War II, not something cute that Ben Dominich and Don Lemon can talk about to get clicks on Twitter. So, given all this information, given what's actually happening, one must ask themselves a very important question. What has caused such immense destruction? The answer to these things is very complex and very layered. There is not a simple fix to a problem that spans the level of scale and scope and encapsulates many things that could leave our world in tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions and billions, at risk. But there is a good genesis to start as any. Upon realizing what this is, it's something that many people shake their heads in disbelief to, but something that absolutely cannot be avoided with this and many other conflicts. Money. Money, largely sent by foreign governments and entities from around the world, is what is fueling the fire and has kept both sides going for as long as they have, particularly on the side of the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians, who wouldn't have stood a chance without backing from the West on the monetary and weaponry front, are now able to compete with the Russian military due to our help getting them where they needed to be. And there is a key observation that must be made here. The money that America and the world has sent to, quote, help Ukraine has done so for a, for a specific purpose. That money has not been sent in the form of peaceful negotiations and sit-downs. That money has been used to stockpile massive weapons and tools of warfare and weigh them heavily against one another. We will be in Ukraine for, quote, as long as it takes, as our president has said. It's not enough to want the conflict to stop. We want to win. We want pride. We want Putin's head on a platter. To see the war without seeing the desire, desired end state from that war, mostly by our leaders, is a miscalculation that too many people have made in this past year. This has, naturally, led to the Ukrainian ruling class, most specifically Zelensky and his cohorts, rightly believing that they are entitled to an endless stream of dollars that comes from American citizens. This money that is going over there does not want peace. Peace is very unprofitable for everyone. It leads to the stopping of the centralization of power and the swelling of a lot of people's pockets and heads. The people involved with this flow of cash do not want peace. They want more money, which means they want more war. This realization by all parties has led to a no-holds-barred bonanza of cash being thrown into this conflict by some of the biggest power brokers in the world. The most notable of these is the American military-industrial complex of defense contractors and our unelected government officials who work hand-in-glove with them. This absolutely reckless barrage of spending on armed sources, defense tactics, and the best weapons in the world being shipped overseas has not solved the problem of the Russia-Ukraine war. Rather, it has been further turned up the heat, putting all the pressure on our enemies, Russia, to up the ante on their end further. The only group of people that this is failing to help is the group of people that actually matter, the people that this conflict is supposedly all about, the people of Eastern Europe. The current warmongering we are doing in Ukraine is not helping the people in that region of the world. It is hurting them. It is making them suffer more. The more the war presses on, the longer it will take to recover. The more people will be displaced. The more people are going to die. The more families that are going to starve. The more that women and girls will be forced to sell their bodies so that their families can have food. The more that they will be further humiliated and disgraced by the nation that claims to love them so much. 
This is the true cost of war. It is not as much as in dollars and cents as it is in hearts and souls. One of Jocko Willing's most powerful things that he repeats when talking about armed conflict is his philosophy of the two wills, the will to die and the will to kill. The will to die is straightforward. You need to be willing to die in order to win a war. The will to kill, however, is much more difficult to wrap your head around. The enemy you face in war is not the only person you are going to kill should you go to war with that enemy. You also are, inadvertently, going to kill innocent people. You're going to kill babies, children, the elderly, mothers, and everyone surrounding all of these people. Most people do not want to, but that doesn't matter. War is messy, particularly when missiles are fired by robots and cities are being sieged. There are certain things that are tragically unavoidable, the suffering of the civilian populace being one of the most unpopular but more true things that fit that category. The biggest refugee crisis since World War II and potentially ever is currently underway right now in Eastern Europe. It mostly affects the weak, poor, and helpless. Those weak, poor, and helpless people are mostly women and children. You will not see anyone like Biden, Putin, or Zelensky in these caravans of people. They do not get magazine covers and press conferences. They get the shaft, as they do in every single pointless war that has ever existed. There are tens of millions of people in the Middle East who could say something similar, if anyone wouldn't give enough of a fuck to ask them about it. As said before, their usual war strategy of throwing enough bodies at a problem to eventually make that problem go away is in full effect. Russia and their horrible government will continue to use their version of ethnic cleansing to throw groups they don't like into harm's way, while they will be slaughtered by American-backed military intervention under the guise of virtue and, quote, spreading democracy. What will result is that what has already resulted, no actual progress being made, an incredible amount of destruction being caused. It's a cruel game that this war is playing with the world. Russia's centralized government is throwing their inconvenient citizenry into the fray for them to be sacrificed by Ukraine's centralized government throwing their citizenry into the fray. No one is taking any responsibility. No one is seeing how insane all this is. No one can see the forest through the trees. No one can see where this is going and how all of this would come back to majorly bite us in the ass if we allow it. And we seem to be getting closer and closer to that biting in the ass by the day. What it all comes back to is United States-driven foreign policy and how inept it's been at not seeing the bigger issue that could, could and eventually will come with this problem. It didn't matter with Nord Stream 2 and our denial of at least being obviously involved, which is about as blatant of an act of intentional and total war criminality against Russia as you can get. It didn't matter whether we pushed against Russia for years by provoking them slowly inching closer and closer and allowing Ukraine to potentially join NATO, an alliance that should have been disbanded years ago. It didn't matter that, when an offer for peace was on the table, we told the Ukrainian and Russian governments to say no thanks. All of it was leading up to the final act of this horrible conflict, one that is approaching as the war continues to be pressed forward at the West's demand. America, by inserting themselves into the front lines of this conflict that initially had nothing to do with them, is responsible for what is currently happening. It has been our aid inside of this country, our incessant beating of the war drums, that has led the war to last for as long as it has and for all the destruction to keep happening around it. We and our Western allies should be ashamed of the mess we've made of the world. It is no different from the Middle East or any other empire we've tried to build. The way up is fun, but the way down only results in a worse scenario than before. We, as America, must take culpability and responsibility for what has happened. It is no different than a five-year-old spilling something in the kitchen. It may not have been our mess at the beginning of the war, but it's certainly our mess from how much we fucked it up after we've entered it. It is only through strong and commanding leadership, 
something that has been completely absent from this issue at this point, that will get us out of it. It is only through the strength of brave people doing brave things that we can stop this and hopefully salvage most of what is left over. But I'm beginning to fear that the time for that scenario to be possible has long since passed. I fear that our pride has become too big for us to tone it down enough so that we can do what must be done to, stop putting, to put a stop to this conflict. I fear that the conflict itself has become too perilous to turn back from where we once came. I don't believe that we can treat the, people, the problem as we have this entire time. Too many things have changed for that to be possible. Many people are observing from afar why this approach might still be needed. It's still a war between two same countries. So why should we care to do something different? What's the big deal? Why does any of this shit, anything involving this conflict, actually matter to begin with? Part three, why it matters. When the Cold War propaganda film Duck and Cover made the airwaves in 1952, it captivated the masses. Highlighted by Bert the Turtle and his encounter with a nuclear strike from the Soviet Union, the film was meant to give people hope, to inspire them that things wouldn't actually be as bad as they were when bombs were dropped less than a decade earlier on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The film was obviously meant to do this. Why else would an anthropomorphic turtle who tells children to simply get under a desk when a nuke drops to be played to the masses other than giving them a sense that nuclear war was something that could be overcome? The short film was deliberately made to be ridiculous. It was made to satisfy children, the people who were most afraid in society, by disarming them in a different way than would be standard should a nuclear explosion have happened. Seventy years later, however, the people that make propaganda tried a different tactic, this time in live action. Late in 2022, a public safety announcement was released by the government of New York that dealt with the same topic as Bert the Turtle, what to do in the event of a nuclear holocaust. Being guided through an all too, by an all-too-familiar and perfect woman, who casually walked through the steps of nuclear annihilation. She delivered a supposedly foolproof three-step process by counteracting the blast. Get inside, stay inside, and stay tuned. The hilariously awful thing about both Duck and Cover and the New York City PSA is that they are both incredibly flawed propaganda puff pieces. The goals were the same. Dissuading the public by lying to them about what actually happens when you play the fuck-around-and-find-out game with a country with thousands of nuclear warheads at their disposal. They both had the same goal, even if their ways to getting to that goal were very much different. Convey safety when safety is impossible. Both of these announcements were looked at as the national standard to adopt in the case of a nuclear apocalypse. Get inside, stay inside, and stay tuned. Bullshit. This isn't a cartoon. This is far too serious for a public safety announcement. This is not an Indiana Jones movie. No amount of lead-lined refrigerators can save you from Russian vaporization. This is a serious matter. But, thanks to the interventions and entanglements of our expert and ruling classes and their willing mob that enforces them, it has not been taken seriously at all. When Tulsi Gabbard met up with Joe Rogan a few months back, the day to announce her official launch of her podcast, this is the clip that went the most viral. When on the topic of what she, why she was leaving the Democratic Party, this was one of her primary concerns. Being an anti-war politician was now remarkably out of fashion, which is particularly strange coming from a Democrat. Gabbard has always been very anti-war, citing a very real specific example to show as much. You may remember that, a couple years back, 
we had a really big scare centered around Hawaii, Gabbard's home state that she represented while she was in Congress. In a terrible incident that was nothing more than a blip in the system, the entire state of Hawaii was informed that a nuclear strike was imminent. A missile had been launched directly for them and was on its way to get rid of that specific stain in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Naturally, when people heard about this, they panicked. Hawaii's in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of an ocean. People grabbed their families and what belongings they could and fled, trying to get to an airport, boat, anything to take them out of the island and spare them and their loved ones from a nuclear blast. However, Gabbard had a different tactic. She did not panic, and not because she's usually a very stoic person. The reason she actually didn't panic, however, remains much more scary than it would have been if she wasn't a very stoic person. She had resigned herself to her fate. Gabbard knew that, no matter what her reaction would have been to a nuke dropping in the middle of her homeland island chain, that it wouldn't have mattered. The people on the island wouldn't have gotten away fast enough. There may have been planes, but there is no plane fast enough to outrun something like a nuclear explosion. It doesn't matter how big nor how small it is, particularly in this day and age. A nuclear explosion is a nuclear explosion. They do one thing, and one thing only. Destroy everything indiscriminately. This is why, when Gabbard continued on, the premise of, quote, tactical nuclear weapons is patently absurd on its face. There is no such thing as a, quote, tactical nuclear weapon. Any safety at all is thrown out the window when that technology is introduced. Even though there have been miraculous innovations in military technology since the 40s and 50s, the same works in the inverse. The whole reason military intervention happens is for one reason, and innovation happens for, is for one reason, to make it more deadly. A nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon, and one that's far superior to the ones our grandparents told us about during the duck and cover period of history. Additionally, the other reason that Gabbard correctly said that there would be no hope should a, quote, tactical or otherwise nuclear weapon be used is the after-effect of the blast. Let's just say for an example that there was a nuclear missile that was sent to fly successfully into Hawaii. The complete destruction of the islands would be a, not be the endpoint of the blast. They would only be the beginning. The reason that nuclear weapons are uniquely different in their horror from any other weapon of war is that their effects linger for a very long time. It's a bioweapon, so biology is naturally going to be very much effective. The water surrounding the Hawaiian Islands would be poisoned and tainted. The fish would all die. An entire biological ecosystem would be completely thrown out of whack and spread throughout the Pacific Ocean. The ripple effects would be tremendous and would be felt by the entire world. And that's just an isolated example on a tropical island far away from the shores of California. Imagine if the people in New York were right and a nuclear bomb was dropped there. Some have estimated, should that be the case, the entire East Coast, not just the city, would be destroyed. The blast would obliterate everything from Maine to Miami. There would be nothing left. Everything would be wiped off the face of the earth in an act that could only be rivaled by God himself. All the major American stock exchanges would be obliterated. So would all of our major financial institutions, including the bank accounts that we all use. Air travel to our, our biggest airports would be non-existent. A major shipping hub would be completely wiped out. That part of the Atlantic Ocean would be left unusable for fishing purposes. The fires that would rage from the explosion would spread throughout the entire mainland state of New York. Nearly every single American, if not directly killed, would lose a family member or a close friend. It would throw the entire world into chaos. And that's just if it, hit New it just hits New York City. Imagine if those scientists who mentioned, we mentioned earlier were right, and that explosion destroys the whole East Coast of the United States. The country we all live in would instantly become unlivable. 
our political systems would collapse. Our economy would crash with no hope of recovery. Millions would become sick and even more millions would die. A good portion of our supplies of food and water would be either contaminated or vaporized entirely, left completely unusable. What is the counter to a move like this being made, you might ask? The only one that could come close, if we keep going at it in a tit-for-tat style of counterattack, would be a counter-nuclear offensive against Russia and their allies. We would have to destroy them just as they destroyed us. We'd have nothing to lose. The world, our world, the one we share with everyone else, including Russia, would have already gone to hell. We would just have to finish the job and send everyone else to join us. Terminator wasn't off in the slightest when they called the same event in their movies Judgment Day. It is exactly the same scenario, with the exception of one thing. It will not be God that causes our world to end, but people playing God that does. All of this can and should be avoided. But at this rate, I fear that it won't be. Our leaders and the people who are both, that are both our, quote, friends and enemies have led us to a point where this is going to end up being the scenario should no one remove themselves from their delusions to see what they could end up doing. What was once a noble cause for sovereignty has descended into what all wars descend into, petty and power-hungry mongrels who devour everything in their path at a mostly selfish end, to the detriment and suffering of all those they claim to side with. We should be very careful of how we proceed about this. With all the rhetoric going on in our country surrounding Russia and what we want to do to them should Ukraine win the war, with all the talks of toppling Putin and pushing them further, we're going down a familiar path that we should not attempt to tread upon. We tried it once in the Treaty of Versailles. That led to the Second World War and the biggest mass casualty conflict in modern world history. It all started with humiliating Germany, with continued onslaught into an already humiliated nation that had been publicly dominated and embarrassed on the biggest world stage during World War I. One person who understood this very deeply was President John F. Kennedy. During the nuclear escalation of the Cold War during the early 60s, President Kennedy played a remarkably brave and important role in stopping this from ever happening. He delivered incredible speech after incredible speech, deliberately deterring the possibility of war and batting away the warmongering bad actors that only wanted to profit out of the misery that continuous conflict inevitably brings. No matter what you think of Kennedy's political opinions, personal life, or any of his children, we were incredibly lucky to have him in office during this extraordinary time in world history, the first time world powers had the potential to destroy one another from afar with a simple push of a button. That was, and is, leadership. That was something that the people in charge today do not possess. They should do some homework so we can have someone, someone they can trust, to guide them through the tumultuous waters that they find themselves in. The most powerful of President Kennedy's speeches that I've stumbled upon was one where he referenced the concept of humiliation exactly what led to the First World War. It was one thing when we did it to Germany when they were a beaten and broken country with unstable political foundations and an uneasy populace. It's a whole easy, entirely different scenario when you consider modern Soviet Russia, who had an authoritarian dictator, a mostly unified populace, and have shown time and time again that they can weather adversity through the toughest times in history, ranging from Napoleon to their mountainous victory at Stalingrad. The line that sticks out the most, the line that hits the hardest, the line that tells the blunt story about our situation then and now is as follows, quote, Nuclear powers must avert these confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of an either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be evidence only of a bankruptcy of our policy or of a collective death wish for the world, end quote. We do not have any power if that death wish happens. It all ends. 
it's over for the entire world if that infamous red button is pushed. If that happens, the only hope you have is praying to the God that you believe in and hoping that it saves you. Because at that point, the earth, the fallen world that we inhabit, will all be too late. We won't be able to save anything, most certainly ourselves. All the power we had will have will instantly dissipate. All that's left to do is wait for the fallout to come and claim us. But we do before then. We have much more power than we think that we do. The best thing you can do, that we all can do, to prevent something like this from occurring, is to be an informed and active citizen, particularly on this issue. With cultural globalism remaining more and more commonplace and becoming more and more commonplace, we need the remaining citizens that we do have, the ones that care about the future of our country and of the world, to speak up and say something. Be informed. Listen to dissenting opinions. Make your own decision to see which ones are right and which ones are wrong. Maybe this entire post and podcast is nothing but bullshit. Maybe I'm a psychopathic crazy person who's way out of his depth trying to get clicks on the internet. It happened to the Kardashians. It can certainly happen to me. When you're able to do so, you will, hopefully, begin to see what I see. You'll begin to see that this is a far more serious threat than we're being told, particularly from our national leadership. Once you do notice, talk to people about it. Send an email to your local representatives. Call your senators. Yell at the powerful people who should know much better than they apparently do. Do something to get them to stop before it's too late for any and all of us. You have a voice. It matters. But only if you use it. War is nothing more than a tragic consequence of a failure of leadership to take responsibility. As citizens, we should be doing nothing to encourage its continued outgrowth. If we really care, if we really want to stand for what's right, to be on the right side of history, the only side we can take is one where the conflict stops. Anything that encourages its continuity, no matter who it subjectively hurts or helps, is something that encourages the continued suffering of the ordinary people that always lose. War is not Democrat, Republican, pro-free, or pro-woke. It is just and only awful. If we want the awfulness to stop, we, as people, must be better. But if worse does come to worst, just duck and cover. We'll see what happens. Okay, everybody. So isn't that depressing going into your week and into your Monday? But I think it's a very important topic. I think it's a topic that needs to be discussed. I think it's a topic that needs to be talked about with seriousness, that it's not being talked about at this moment, which frustrates the shit out of me. And it just, I don't know. Again, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. I think I do. I trust my sources that I have and the people that I listen to. And I just think it's something we just need to question more and we need to be more involved in than what we are. So I encourage you to do that this week as you go into everything else. Just think about these things, think about everything and question everything. Question the powerful people. That's what we should do as citizens to hold them accountable. So until then, guys, thanks for listening. Value Economics out now. Open your mind. Own the day. Talk to you guys next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?